Okay. Um, so Lamentations, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and guess that most of you have never heard a sermon series on Lamentations. Um, I'm not doing this to be novel or anything. I'm just doing this because I think it's what's in this book is, is actually really important um, and something that the church does not talk about very much. So uh, that's why we're doing it. But there aren't a lot of sermon series on this book. Um, largely, I think, because it's really a, it's a bummer. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's, it's a downer, okay? So we're going we're gonna to say that up front. Um, but Lamentations is, I think, uh, a very important book. I really do. And I think that it points us to Jesus probably more than what we may see on the surface. So let me start today just with the obvious question, uh, why would we do this to ourselves? Like why, why or why would I do this to you? Maybe is a better question. Why would we take some time through lamentations? <clears throat> well, I'm going to give you an obvious answer, and then I'm going to give you maybe a less obvious answer. The, the obvious answer is, this is God's word, okay? So it's in the Bible, which means it's from God and uh, inspired by him, spoken by him through the prophet that, that was writing it down. God's words are in these words. And that's important, right? Because 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture, all, that you can underline all in your Bible sometime when you get there, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting and training in righteousness. And so we, we have to, start there, right? The reason fundamentally we're, we're talking about this is the same reason we talk about anything in the Bible, uh, because it's from God. It's inspired of him and from him, and it's, therefore, it's important and profitable, even if on the surface it doesn't make sense to us how it's profitable. Um, so that's the obvious one. Now, you would expect that because I'm a pastor and you're in a church, uh, so that would be Kind of like, okay, that's kind of a cop-out answer perhaps to you. So let me give you another reason, just something that, as I've thought through this, as I, as I have mapped out our sermon series, and, and we're usually, we've got our sermons planned usually about an, a year out. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been planning to preach this for quite a while. Um, but here's the, here's the thing that I think is going on in my head at least. That Lamentations really is, the stuff of life. Like, it it is life that's dealt with in this book. Um, Life, as you all know, is not a Hallmark movie. I'm blessed with a wife who doesn't watch Hallmark movies. Now, that's not a slight to any of you who do, um, but I'm just blessed. I'm a blessed man. Um, But a Hallmark movie, you know... (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay, I'm already... It's already happening, so uh, I've already offended half half the room. Um, but we all know that, that Hallmark movies, you know, they, they tie up with a nice little bow, right? And that's why you watch it, because it's comfortable and, it, it, you know, it has its roller coaster and then it all resolves itself. But that's not life. We know that that's not life. Um, and I think more than we've realized, we have bought into uh, a false notion of a perfect Christian life. And, and that's, that's unfortunate, like, we, we've bought into this belief, I think, particularly in the Western church, 
Um, I don't think you get this as much in the southern church of Africa and South America because of the intensity of the poverty in those countries. But in, in our world, in our, in our part of the world, um, I think we've bought into a belief, a, a false belief, that there is something called the Christ, a perfect Christian life. And there just isn't. That notion is, is, about, is about as stable as a house of cards, right? You get, you get a little breeze and that thing is coming, crashing down. Um, if you put any pressure on it, it's going to collapse. And, and when we believe this idea of a perfect Christian life, that's really what we're building our life on, a, a house of cards that is, is going to leave us disenchanted, disenfranchised, perhaps even tempted to walk away from the faith. That's, that's a reality. I think we've done ourselves, in the Western church, I think we've done ourselves a disservice by not preaching more of the hard things in the scriptures and talking about the, the, the hard parts of life. So that's where Lamentations comes in. It's in the scriptures for a reason, and it's because this book helps us come to grips with the reality that life is hard, that suffering is a part of human life because of sin. And, and, but even more than that, this book does give us words for our grief and our despair. Because that's really fundamentally what it is. It's a book of laments. It's a, we're going to see this as we go through it, but it's, it's probably written by Jeremiah. Everybody, everybody has always said Jeremiah wrote this. There's nothing in the book itself that attributes to him directly, but it's likely, and I, I have no reason to doubt that it's by Jeremiah's hand that this was written, uh, inspired by God, of course, but Jeremiah witnessed the absolute destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., maybe 587 B.C., depending on who you ask. And he wrote basically five um, what we would call elegies. They're, they're, they're funeral poems. Um, and they're poems to express his grief over what has happened in the world that he lived in. And, and so this book gives us words, even for our grief and despair, even though the things that happened that inspired this book's writing happened 25, 2,600 years ago uh, from where we sit today. It is still true today, and it helps us. It's profitable. Um, and what's amazing is that this book actually does, at times, question God's goodness, his plan. And you know what? That's a human thing, right? It's not right. It's, it's born out of a, a heart of doubt, but it's honest. And what I love about the Bible is how honest it is. Um, God inspired every word of the Bible, which means God could have whitewashed this thing and kind of just taken out anything that, that humans had to think about him in, in a negative way, but he doesn't do that. Throughout the Psalms, throughout Job, throughout Lamentations, throughout many, many places in the scriptures, human beings wrestle with suffering and they question God in the midst of it. And that's helpful because this means that the Bible actually like, works with the lives that we live too. When we're going through absolute turmoil, we, we have those same proclivities as the uh, scripture 
people in the scriptures did as well. The, the Bible is not hiding the cries of the confused. It's not hiding the cries of the confused. And in fact, the Bible is a book that's bent towards human suffering. You could say that the epicenter of the Bible is human suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. God became man and suffered for humanity. And that's the center of our faith. Um, so, so I think while we go through lamentations over the next five weeks, we're only taking five weeks. It's not going to be in this thing forever, but um, for the next five weeks, we're going to look at human suffering. We're going to look at how Jesus uh, meets us in that. Um, but this book is not going to give us a bunch of tidy little answers. So it's not a Hallmark movie. It's not going to end in a, in a way that's just like, oh, everything's resolved. Um, <clears throat> it leaves a lot to, to wonder. That being said, this book also points us to the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel being, of course, the good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus, which, unlike a house of cards, is a cornerstone, is a firm foundation that we can build our lives on, even when life is horrible and chaotic. All right, so that's the intro here. I'm going to warn you, we're going to get into chapter one today. Chapter one and chapter two are bleak, okay? Just fair warning, really bleak, like like beyond bleak, okay? So there's probably nothing in this, in the text itself, that's going to be very positive. But this is an interesting thing because we're looking at the structure of the book. It's, it's five poems. Uh, all of them are uh, poems that are acrostic or four out of five of them are acrostic. So it, it goes through the Hebrew alphabet and each stanza starts with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That doesn't come across real clearly in English. Um, but what's fascinating about this book is that right smack in the middle, chapter 3, is, is where we actually see the mercy of God for the first time. He, it comes in chapter 3. So in, in like two weeks from now, we'll get there. We'll unpack that. But I think it's super significant on how the book itself is laid out, that the first two chapters are just nothing but bleak. God meets the people right in the middle of their suffering with his mercy. And then the, la- the last two chapters are not going to necessarily be not bleak, uh, but we have this promise of God's mercy in the middle of our suffering. I think that's significant, but we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, so if you have your Bible, or if you want to look at the screen, we're going to be in Chapter 1, this passage is broken into three sections. Um, basically, it's going to talk about the state of the city. Where, where is it at? He's going to talk about the condition in the city. He's going to talk about what got them to that condition. And then he's going to talk about how God uh, was uh, involved in this. Okay, so that's the, that's the main kind of breakdown of the passage. But let's look at the first It's in verse 1 through 7. The state of Jerusalem is the the main idea here. Look at this. It says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she's become. She who is great among the nations. 
She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, now let me stop there for a second. You're going to hear some things. This is poetic language. This is poetry. All right, so he's personifying the city like it's a person, right? Like a, a woman. So he's speaking in personification language uh, of, a, of a city. So just you got to kind of catch that as we're reading through this. But when it refers to her lovers, uh, that's important. It's going to come up a number of times in this passage. Uh, he's talking about the, the, the nations that Israel tried to lean on and depend on for help in this Babylonian captivity uh, and that ended up turning their back on them. Okay, so we'll get there. I'll talk a little more about that. But just so you know, that's kind of where this is going. So among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughters of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Okay, so historical context. Like this is something, this is a, a, a unique take on uh, a historical event. An event that Jeremiah talked about for a long time. An event that Isaiah references as well. Um, and here you have this, these prophets that come to Israel they're, they're sent by God to speak to the people and call them to repentance. And, and they're told through these prophets that there's going to be this captivity that the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to take you away. And that's what's happened. At this point, as we're reading uh, Lamentations, that has now come to pass. This has happened. It's, it's not something that should have taken anybody by surprise, but... You know, it doesn't make it any easier to go through. And Jeremiah is likely the one writing these words basically as a way to mourn what happened, to, to, to lament what happened. And so we get from these first seven verses, basically the condition of Jerusalem after the Babylonian uh, captivity and, and besiegement. And so he, you can just hear how he's, looking back at the greatness of Jerusalem before and now the devastation that they're in. He starts with saying how lonely sits the city that was full of people. Right, so there was once a vibrant, 
active city that's now empty and people, virtually everyone was either killed or hauled away. And, and so he says that she's become like a widow. She's, she's alone. There's no one else. All of her friends have abandoned her. All of her lovers have rejected her. They've all actually turned on her. So again, referencing the nations that they were trying to tr- uh, trust in for help, those nations ended up backstabbing Israel. And so now we have this situation where the sad state of Jerusalem is a tragedy. And, and Jeremiah is writing about this tragedy, how everything is lost. The, the once vibrant city that was once the, uh, the, the very city that people from all over the world would come to to, to admire, particularly under uh, Solomon's reign, right? When Solomon was king, he built uh, palaces, he built the temple. Uh, this was an incredible city. The queen of Sheba came to it to see it, to behold it, this is, this is now absolutely turned to ruin because the Babylonians have now come. So that's simply just describing in poetic language what happened and where it's at. But, but this passage goes on to talk about why that happened. And why it happened is actually way more important than just that it happened. Right, and so look, look at verse 8 uh, through 14. We're going to look at this next section, but verse 8 really tells you everything you need to, to know. It says, Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they've seen her nakedness as she groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, so, no, so she took no, no thought to her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter the sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. That's a reference to the temple being looted, ransacked by the Babylonians. This place that was reserved for the worship of God is now being uh, just torn to pieces by the Babylonians. Look at this, verse 11. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. So now we have a picture of people starving to death literally starving in in the streets and they're searching for food. They're willing to to trade in their most valuable items just to have a piece of bread. This is a a devastating state of affairs, right? Goes on to say, well, the, the passage turns to speaking to the Lord. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Verse 12 says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones, he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back. He's left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, 
By his hand, they were fashioned together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. So the question is, okay, not just what happened, but why did it happen? And the answer is verse 8 and then verse 14 tell us it's because of the sin of God's people. The reason this happened was because of unrepentant sin. Think about this. I know nobody likes this truth, but this is truth. Sin brings suffering. It does. Now, not exclusively, right? We have examples in the scripture of people who sin because of someone else, or suffer rather because of someone else's sin, certainly. We, we have examples of someone like Job who didn't do anything to directly lead to his suffering. And his foolish friends were trying to convince him that he had, and that just wasn't the case. It's very clear in that example that no, suffering doesn't always happen as a result of personal sin, but it does happen as a result of personal sin, at least sometimes. It's a category of suffering that exists. We need to recognize this. The suffering in this case could have been prevented. It should have been prevented, right? They had the prophets over and over again telling them to turn back to the Lord that they might be healed. Over and over again, the prophets told them that this would happen. And consistently, the people of Israel refused to turn from their sin. This suffering wasn't like Job's suffering. It was suffering that came because of their disobedience to the Lord. So that's a category, right? It's not the only answer to suffering. If that's the only answer to suffering, then, man, we... We, we've got to wrestle with that, right? That's not, that's not the only reason people suffer. But it is one reason why people suffer. And I know we've kind of moved away from that as a culture, just kind of to assume, well, no, 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 my sin never has anything to do with my suffering. It's just not true, though. And I think most of us know deep down that that's not true. But, but let, we have to be balanced in this. We really do. Because otherwise we can do a lot of harm to others. We need to recognize that there are a lot of reasons why people suffer. Let me give you a couple from Jesus uh, himself. Jesus speaks in John 9 about a man who was born blind. Okay? And so in John 9, uh, they meet this guy who had been blind from birth. And the disciples ask Jesus this question, this direct question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You hear the question? The natural question is, okay, this guy was born into a life of suffering, especially in that culture. It was pretty much from the moment he was born, he was going to be resigned to begging on the street because they didn't have a social net. They didn't have anything to really help him. If he didn't have parents that could care for him, he's He's as good as a beggar, right? That's, that's like going to be his lot in life. And so the disciples asked the question, who sinned, Jesus? Whose fault is this? Is it his fault somehow that he sinned like before he was born? Or did his parents sin and so God's punishing them? And Jesus' answer to that question is interesting because he says that 
It wasn't him or his parents that sinned that caused this, but that he was born with this life of suffering so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. That's interesting. So that's a category of suffering that I don't know that we can wrap our heads around super well. But sometimes our suffering is, the result, is brought to us to bring God greater glory. It's a category. In Luke chapter 13, um, Jesus addresses this issue. In verse 1, uh, he says, there were some people present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, so what's going on there? Well, Pontius Pilate evidently killed some Galileans. For, for what? I don't know. We don't have a lot of context about that. And then to add insult to injury, he took some of their blood and mingled it with the blood of the sacrifice, which would have been an abomination and uh, just an awful, awful thing to do. Not sure why that was happening, but they bring this up to Jesus. And Jesus answers them in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, he goes on to say, these 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who were, li- who were living in Jerusalem? No, no. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a really perplexing passage too, right? Because basically what Jesus is saying there is like, here are these two examples of suffering. One, some Galileans got evidently killed or something, had their blood mingled with their sacrifice. And and Jesus' answer is, do you think that they were worse sinners than the other Galileans? No, they weren't worse sinners. But... If you don't repent, you'll likewise perish, okay? Uh, and then he, he goes on to give another example of a tower that fell on eight and killed 18 people in Jerusalem. And uh, that tower, you know, killed these people. And, and Jesus says, okay, were those, were those 18 people worse sinners? Did God kill them because they were worse than everyone else? No. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So here you have another category of sin, which is, that's, or suffering, that suffering can also be a, a wake-up call to all of us because none of us are inherently better than anybody else. We're all equally sinful and we're all equally worthy of death and suffering. Every one of us is equal in that way. And so when some suffer and others don't, it doesn't mean that they were worse sinners than others. But it is a wake-up call for our repentance because we know that we're, we, we deserve to die for our sin as well. So let's repent and come to Jesus. Right, that's what Jesus says. It's an in, so there's a, there's a number of categories for suffering, but lamentations is one that I think gets very little attention, which is that sin actually does lead to suffering. And I think we just got to wrestle with that. It's not easy to do it, but we've, we've got to wrestle with that. We'll get there a little bit more as we conclude, but let's, let's keep reading. Verse 15 through 22. So this is going to get us to the end of the passage. This is um, going to address God's role in all of this. All right, so let's look at verse 15. 
says, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. Okay, he, God, the Lord, summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. Yeah, like what? God, God is doing this. God is doing this. He summoned the Babylonians and said, crush those guys. At least he was sovereignly in it and under it, right? Verse 16 says, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretched out her hand, but there was none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Now, verse 18 is crucial. Read, read this with me. Look, look at it. The Lord is in the right. Why? For I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. And you know who some of those young men and women were? Well, Daniel, for one. The men's, the men's Bible study is studying Daniel right now, and, or at least uh, the, the Thriving in Babylon book by Larry Osborne, which focuses on the life of Daniel in this period. So this is sort of, we're kind of seeing how things kind of overlap in the Bible. But so Daniel talks about this event in chapter one of that book, just kind of gives us the overview of that history. This is looking at it from Jeremiah's perspective and the sorrow that he has over what happened. But notice the key phrase in verse 18. The Lord is in the right because I have rebelled against his word. That's, that's crucial. We'll, we'll get there. But let's, let's keep reading. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought for food to revive their strength. The priests and the elders of Jerusalem died of starvation. That's horrific, right? Look, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They've heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. So not so. this is insult to injury, right? Like the enemies of Israel did this to them and all the people kind of watching on the sideline are going, good, we're glad this happened. That's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no comfort from anyone. You have brought the day you announced. That's crucial too. You, Lord, have brought the day you announced. He didn't blindside them with this. They had been warned of this. Now let them be as I am. Now let them be as I am. Is This is kind of interesting because um, Jeremiah is basically saying, okay, Lord, you've done this to us. You're right to do that because we've sinned. But all these other nations around us, 
they're just as awful as we are, so could you kill them too? <laughs> That's what he's saying. <laughs> let, verse 22, let their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Isn't... <laughs> all right. Let, let, so this is the thing. It's, it's clear. This isn't a real complicated book. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians because of the unrepentant sin of the people. But God was not an unjust, evil bully in this. He was a just God in this. He was right to do this. Because sin, the wages of sin, is death. There, there is no innocent people in this situation. I know we may look at it that way because there were children that died. There were, there were young people that died. There were people that we would have looked at from the outside and gone, they didn't deserve this. But that's just not true. Everyone is born inherently a sinner and, and everyone deserves death ultimately. And so what God is doing in this is not wrong. It may not sit well with us, but it's not evil of him. It's not wrong. He's not unjust. He is a just God in this condemnation of Israel at this point in history. Now, we've gotten through the text, but we've got we've to do some, some work here. And there, I've got two things to kind of just draw our, our minds to and our hearts to today. Two things that come to mind. And I'm sure there's millions more that we could talk about in this. But at least a couple things. First, what's painfully and brutally clear in this text, and I don't think we should just gloss over this, what's painfully and brutally clear in this passage is this, that sin ruins everything it touches. It ruined Jerusalem, the city of God in that ancient Near Eastern world. God sent an army from Babylon to destroy them, to plunder them, to kill them, to haul off their, the, the members of the higher class, the nobility, which Daniel and his friends were a part of. We read about that in Daniel 1, and there's, a, there's never a direct like, statement of this, but there's a, a pretty glaring thing that, that we see in Daniel where he never had any children, that never mentioned that he has any children. So, and he worked in the house of the eunuch. So likely Daniel and his friends were hauled off and turned into eunuchs, which means they were castrated. Absolute horrific suffering because of sin. Because of sin. Sin did this. Yes, God was just to do it, but, but he did it because of their sinfulness, their unrepentance, and it ruined everything. Listen, the same is true today. Sin destroys everything it touches. It will ruin your life. It will ruin my life. It will destroy your family, and it ruins churches. I mean, I think that most of us have probably been in enough churches or at least know of enough churches where sin, left unchecked, has absolutely brought those churches to nothing. You know that for your own life because of your own sin. I know that for my life. 
Your family may have, have been ruined in some ways because of sin. Sin ruins everything it touches. We can't miss that. And I, I wouldn't be doing you any favors to ignore that glaring point. That's really the point of this chapter. The sin of the people destroyed them. It was what led to this destruction. Our sin, left unchecked, left unrepented, left undealt with, will do the same to us. Sure, we can hobble along for a while in our self-righteousness, but eventually it will catch up. But secondly, let's talk about this. We, we don't live on that side of the cross. We live on this side of the cross. And that's good news, right? The cross is actually incredibly good news. Unlike Jeremiah, we have the benefit of living on the other side of the finished work of Christ, which really does change everything. It does, fundamentally changes everything. Because in Christ, we just spent like five weeks talking about Romans 8. This is the whole point of Romans 8, that in Christ, all of our condemnation, all of the just condemnation that our sin deserved was taken away from us and placed on Jesus. He took it. He actually endured a greater judgment than the people in Jerusalem in 586 BC. He took the judgment of God from all the sins of the world and he was punished for it. He, the perfect sinless God-man, became the sacrifice for every one of our sins so that we could stand in Christ not condemned. We, we need to see that, right? We need to see that sin left undealt with, left unbrought to the cross will only bring us to ruin. It will bring us to hell. It will. Our sin not given to the cross, will send us to hell. I know no one likes to talk about that, but it's true. And this, this human suffering and lamentations is nothing compared to an eternity in hell. That's the reality, that sin is that bad and it needs to be dealt with, but we have a Savior who did this for us. He, we can see in Christ that all of our sin has been removed. The, the just punishment, the eternal punishment for sin is no longer resting on our shoulders because Jesus took it upon those nail-scarred hands and feet. The punishment for sin is gone and the power of sin is gone from us. But that doesn't mean, I gotta say this, it doesn't mean that the consequences of sin is gone. Like the earthly consequences, outflowing of sinful choices still remains even if the eternal punishment and the ultimate power of sin is removed, right? Your family can still be destroyed in some way by sin, though not eternally, there can still be consequences for it. That's why we need to run to Jesus. We need to run to Jesus. We need to repent of our sins and we need to bring them to the cross and we need to ask him for his help. We need, what we really need is something that older liturgical kind of versions of churches would call confession and assurance. And I know that that's a 
beautiful thing. We don't really do that in a formal way here, but I think there's something to it of confession of sin and assurance of pardon that all of our hearts desperately need. Right, and this is where the, the uh, book of 1 John tries to get us, or does get us, I should say. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, into chapter 2, look at what it says. Now, we won't have it on the screen, but I'll read it. He says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our propitiation or the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he talks, as we continue to read, you'd see that the commandment he's talking about is love of God and love of one another, but that being born out of a heart that's been transformed by grace and the gospel. So here in this passage, we have confession and assurance, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. There's the assurance. If we, are, if we open our hearts to the Lord Jesus in our sin, he will forgive us of our sins because he paid the price for our sins. He doesn't just, he, it's not like he just willy-nilly, okay, sin doesn't matter anymore if you own up to it, but it's actually that he, he completely suffered for sin already. And so that can be applied he, then in verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 2, it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's the advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation's a big word. We don't use it a lot in our modern you know, talk. But propitiation means the removal of wrath. The removal of wrath from us. He became that. He took the wrath from us and put it upon himself on that cross. And so we need confession of sin to be right with God, but we also need the assurance of his forgiveness. Otherwise, confession just becomes a, well, I hope he's listening to this. No, no. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. If you turn to Jesus, he he will hear you. He will respond to you. I, I found these um, confession and assurances uh, helpful. I, I looked up some from old, old books, uh, the Heidelberg Confes- Catechism uh, and um, also the, common, the Book of Common Prayer. Again, not really our tradition uh, as in our, in our little stream of Protestant theology, but, but nonetheless incredibly helpful things. And I think reading things from old sources is really helpful because these people are just like us, but they, they put to words things that we don't always put to words. And here's one of the confessions that we see. It says, Almighty, eternal God and Father, we confess and acknowledge that we were conceived and born in sin 
and are therefore inclined to all evil and slow to all good. We transgress your holy commandments without ceasing and evermore corrupt ourselves. But we're very sorry for this and we seek your grace and help. Please have mercy upon us, most gracious and merciful God and Father, through your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Grant us an increase in, uh, an increase in us, the Holy Spirit, that we may recognize our sin and, unrepent- and unrighteousness from, bo- from the bottom of our hearts, attain true repentance and sorrow for, the- for them, die to them wholly, and please you entirely by a new and godly life. Amen. Then the assurance I found from the Heidelberg Catechism is this. I love it. By true faith in Jesus Christ, we are righteous before God and heirs to eternal life. Even though our consciences accuse us of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of our own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if we had never sinned, nor been a sinner, as if we had been perfectly obedient to Christ as he was obedient for us. All we need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. That's from the Heidelberg Catechism from a long, long time ago, but that's beautiful. It puts to words exactly what our hearts need. Confession, repentance, and assurance. And what you need to know is that Jesus Christ went to the cross and suffered vastly more than the people in Jerusalem did. But he suffered for you. He didn't suffer for his own sins. He suffered for your sins. And Charles Spurgeon says in chapter uh, one of Lamentations, verse 12, which says, I'll read the verse again. It says, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Here's what Spurgeon says about that. He says that this was a lamentation of Jeremiah where he saw the desolation of his beloved city. He marked the cruelties inflicted by the invaders of the Jewish youth, children, and maidens. And he foresaw the long years of bitterness reserved for the captives of Babylon. At the same time, we might take these words out of his mouth and put them into the mouth of Jesus and suppose them to be spoken by him as he hung on the cross and bore God's wrath for us. Is there any suffering like Jesus' suffering? The answer is no. Jesus suffered all for you. We got to remember that. And we need to take, take the time in our hearts to confess, own the sins that are, that are going to destroy us, bring them to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we can do that even today. So let me pray for us. And then, we'll, then we'll continue to respond in worship. Jesus, we are incredibly unworthy of your grace. We're unworthy of it in every avenue of our life. Every, every inch of us is a sinner. And God, I want to confess my sin, my need, and, and 
Lord, I just lean on you. I pray that for each person in this room too, that you would do a work in our hearts to root out the sins that are clinging to us. Give us the grace to throw those at your throne of mercy. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be drawn to you today. Would you do the work that needs to be done in each of us? And we pray that as we remember you through the table and as we remember you through the songs we're about to sing, would you be glorified in it all? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.